Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, I'm Chinny. And I'm Astrid, and welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that widens access to African history. We're also the co-authors of a book by the same name. You can find out more information about us on itsacontinent.com. We're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country by appreciating the identity of each nation. Through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello, thank you for joining us today. So today we are joined by Andre Popovicu, an independent investigative journalist, reporter, audio producer and photographer based in Dakar, Senegal. Andre's work encompasses a wide range of topics, including human rights, migration and foreign affairs, leading him on assignments across Europe, the Middle East and Africa. His contributions have graced the pages of prestigious publications such as The Guardian, Al Jazeera, The Telegraph and Le Monde. And in 2023, he received multiple awards for his compelling audio documentary highlighting the medical challenges faced by children of asylum seekers in Sweden. And that same year, Forbes recognised his achievements by featuring him on their prestigious 30 under 30 list. So we are very excited to have him with us today. Really excited, really looking forward to this conversation to share his valuable insights into the migration of people from the global south to the north. So Andre, thank you for joining us. Welcome to It's a Continent. Thank you so much for having me and good to be together with you today, Astrid and Jenny. Brilliant. So before we begin and just to sort of set the scene for our listeners, what exactly is uh, a refugee, an asylum seeker and a migrant? We know that these words now have negative connotations, but we want to go back to basics and kind of define that first. No, completely. That's a perfectly relevant question because there's a lot of confusion around these terms. The fact is that they have a legal meaning. Um, So if you start with migrant, it's someone who is basically migrating, moving from country to country. Uh, That could be a neighboring country. It could even be within um, the same country, you know, or another continent. But then if you if we look at the concept of uh, asylum seeker, it's someone who faces danger or uh, in any form or persecution um, and are looking for asylum, uh, but they have not got it yet. So it's 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 a person who is in searching basically for safety, for asylum, which is a legal term that offers someone protection should they be in danger uh, in, in whatever form it is. And then refugee is a person who at one point was an asylum seeker and then it it was granted um, the status of refugee after a thorough application process from the host country, which decided that they are indeed a refugee and they can benefit from the relevant uh, aid and, you know, support structures that uh, the state offers them. That's really good. Thank you for just providing those definitions of that because all of those terms are used so interchangeably. And actually, as you said, there are legal kind of there are legal terms and so each one of them you know has a slightly kind of different meaning behind them completely so when we are looking at this topic 
it will be important. I think it'll be good for you to share with us what are some of the underlying drivers that compel people who migrate and often make those dangerous journeys. Um, for sure, yeah. So there's several situations that, that the people find themselves in that would push them to migrate. For example, we could start with conflict, which is one of the kind of gravest and most kind of dangerous and uh, reasons why why people leave uh, leave uh, their home uh, their home countries. So you know you have uh, countries like Syria, Afghanistan, who've been riddled by conflict in in the past, but now you have countries like Sudan. Um, you have a lot of countries in the Sahel, the Western African region, like Mali and Burkina Faso, which are threatened by jihadist movements. You know, because of these conflicts, th- their lives are in danger. There's um, bombing campaigns. There's mines. They don't have ha- access to resources. There's a bunch of basically unintended consequences or intended consequences of conflict that basically make people leave. So this will be one of the first reasons uh, war conflict uh, in whatever form it takes. But then there's another one, um, you know, we could describe as a political instability or repression, authoritarian repression of regimes. So it's not a country that basically, uh, or like citizens that live under, citizens that live in countries that have uh, governments that are not very nice to their people, let's say. You did it mildly, eh? (laughs) Yeah, completely. So... You know, you have you have all these governments, you know, often, you know, it happens uh, in, in the Middle East and Africa, but across the world, you have this rep- repression of the citizens, uh, their right to vote, their right to, you know, express themselves. LGBTQ uh, people in Uganda, for example, are oppressed, even though they're not in a state of conflict. So, you know, this, this might push a lot of people to, to leave in. And then, of course, you have poverty. And poverty mm-hmm. goes hand in hand with corruption. It goes hand in hand to a lack of access to healthcare, access to education, and a lack of development overall, you know, and this would push people obviously to to go and search for better job opportunities or economic opportunities. Yeah, that's great. And it would be interesting to hear around how these factors uh, may have played a role and kind of in the pattern we're seeing in migration. So for example, in 2015, that was quite a pivotal year where we had over 1 million people seeking asylum in Europe. What would you say were the pivotal factors that drove this significant wave of migration? So at the moment, around 2015, it was uh, kind of the height of the Syrian civil war, which, you know, turned into a full-blown out uh, kind of regional conflict to an extent, the proxy conflict with a bunch of countries involved. Most of the people that were arriving on Europe's shores, they were of Syrian origin, or also people from Afghanistan. So you could see the direct linkage with those conflict hotspots and how they affected basically the movement of people uh, arriving. So there's a, yeah, there's a direct and concrete kind of connection to the Syrian civil war and the uh, deterioration of life in Afghanistan that were making people leave. But then of course you would have people from places like Eritrea where, you know, there's a military dictatorship that are making people um, forcing them to uh, enroll uh, from a young age in the military. So, you know, you've had kind of these other spots in the world where, you know, you would have people coming uh, around that time, but the, most of them were Syrians and Afghan people. And then when it comes to, as you're saying, you know, 2015, what was going on in sort of Syria, and then you had a lot of kind of Syrian Afghan people migrating across into Europe. What are some of the routes that people are taking kind of from these different nations to get into Europe and what are some of the risks involved? I think it's really important. You know, we see a lot in the news, but I think it'll be really good to get your insights in terms of what that 
process looks like and what that experience is like? No, for sure. I mean, this is, you know, uh, a lot of times in my reporting, the most grueling part of the interviews and of learning about these people's experiences is kind of the journey they're taking, you know, and all the all these ris- risks they're facing. And usually, you know, these journeys that span like countries, mountains, you know, seas, um, extremely like difficult uh, routes that, you know, sometimes take years to complete. But then you mm-hmm. have people from Africa, you know, so if we're looking at uh, West Africa, there's a the, one of the routes, the Western Atlantic route, is uh, people taking uh, traditional wooden boats. A lot of them are fishermen. Traditionally, they are going to the Canary Islands, which is a it's this archipelago of islands that's close to Western Africa. It's about a hundred miles uh, from Morocco, and it belongs to Spain. It's a Sp- Spanish territory, so they can claim asylum uh, once they reach there, or simply, you know, try and try and get to work. But then you have other routes in Africa. If you look at Tunisia and Libya, uh, before Libya was a big departure point where people would take boats to get to, to Greece or Italy. Uh, now uh, Tunisia is starting to become kind of the leading departure point. Up until getting to the Mediterranean coast, people are coming from you know Sudan, Eritrea, all these, and they're just converging uh, in either Libya or, or Tunisia. So along these routes, you have exploitation by smugglers, you know, people who promise you I'll you know, cross the Mediterranean in exchange for, you know, a few thousand dollars, euros, pounds, um, and then, you know, it never happens. Uh, there's torture involved. There's uh, uh, cases of rape and sexual violence that have been um, reported on and uh, uh, kind of researched. So, you know, these, these, these trips come with a lot of, you know, these the associated risks of these vulnerable people being taken, people just taking stuff from them, you know, um, they're, everyone's uh, is aware of these risks, but they uh, they choose to to do it because uh, it's either that or uh, nothing. Despite you know crossing the Sahara Desert, the Atlantic Ocean, the the most dangerous place on the route is the Mediterranean Sea, where uh, tens of thousands of people have disappeared or or drowned. Just this year in 2023, there were over 2,000 people who who've died in the sea in the Mediterranean. And then in 2016, we saw like over 5,000 people die or, or disappear. And in total, since, you know, the, the surge in people coming in 2015, you have over 27,000 people who've uh, disappeared or died in, in, in the Mediterranean since, since, uh, since that time. So, you know, you have this extremely kind of dangerous place that just outside of Europe's borders, which has become basically a liquid cemetery, you know, where people are basically yeah. dying in the hundreds, risking their lives to get to Europe. That's really moving here and it being described as a liquid cemetery. And there's some really, really horrible stories recently. There was one around um, how a Senegalese village lost like scores of people um, on a drifting boat, um, I believe, headed towards the Canary Islands, uh, as you mentioned earlier. We've also found as well, just in terms of how Europe's attitude towards asylum and immigration has really hardened in recent years. How has this impacted European border policies? And is this how does this contribute to what's going on in the, in the Mediterranean, for example? Mm-hmm. No, uh, I mean, after... 2015, you know, Europe and the European Commission wanted to stay or seem like they were doing something about people coming. Um, You know, like politics took a shift to the right around that time. You know, people were much more um, like they were engaging in populist uh, rhetoric about, you know, keeping people out and so on. So a lot of money was invested in very hardening the borders and, you know, passing policy and designing policy that 
prevents people from arriving or makes it harder for them to stay. So that took different shapes and forms. One that I've reported on before and is a quite kind of dystopic uh, development in, in EU migration policy was, you know, this focus on surveillance technologies and militarizing these borders and installing all these drones and, you know, heart beating detectors, uh, night vision cameras and so on, like a bunch of a bunch of these technologies that are basically meant to to detect people and prevent them from from crossing, which obviously then increase violence. So I reported from Serbia and Romania a lot on these types of um, another border with Hungary as well, on these types of technologies that are used to keep people away. And in a way, it dehumanizes them and increases the violence um, of border guards, you know. Besides that, you know, you, we've seen an increase in border violence. So a lot of national border guards, uh, especially in the Balkans, where you have the European Union's external uh, border, which is an important border because once you're inside the European Union, you can travel freely um, in most countries in the, who are in the Schengen zone. So this border has really hardened. You see, you know, a lot of violence by border police, you know, torture, reports of police practicing um, a tactic called pushbacks in which basically they push people across the border, um, even though it's illegal according to international law. You're supposed to be able to cross the border and ask for asylum uh, according to international law. But just to clarify, so you can, mm-hmm. it, you are freely open to seek asylum in Europe without having obviously then being pushed back or any of any of that happening to you, right? Like they are wherever you're coming from, you are able to do that. That is your right under international law. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So that's enshrined uh, international law and all the countries are, you know, committed to that and have signed into into these like legal norms. So regardless of where you're from, if you show up on someone's border, you are allowed to kind of cross the border and go to the police and say, you know, I want to apply for asylum. And the police mm-hmm. is forced and obligated legally to offer you the opportunity to apply for asylum. A lot of the officers systematically encouraged across these, these border countries at the external border to deny people this right of asking for asylum. Of the journeys you've just walked us through, A, the trauma of that experience, and then to you know potentially be physically attacked and then pushed back, it's just overwhelming. Completely. A lot of people who I've spoken to tell me that, you know, for some, the worst part was Europe's borders of their journey. Oh, wow. The worst part was the violence they, um, and the demonization out of all the journey they've done. Wow. That's that is, so much. You know, it, yeah. 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 And uh, I mean, often, obviously, they come from places where, you know, they, their lives are in danger often. Uh, but some, you know, are persecuted, but at the same time, they're with their families. Life is, it is dangerous for them to be there, but at least, you know, you have your families. But then when you go and you end up on Europe's borders alone with nothing. Is there a reason why Europe decided to focus on kind of that surveillance piece instead of actually focusing on tackling more serious crimes? Because I don't know, to me, it doesn't feel like, you know, these are just people, as you said, under international law should have every right to seek asylum anywhere. Mm-hmm. No, that's a that's a really good question. I think that what I see is that you know it's all a political, basically bishbosh. Like people are people are influenced by by politics, you know. So the part this migration policy, especially, can make or break an election. You know, it's a political uh, kind of incentive on the part of a lot of 
policymakers to look tough on migration because these narratives are around invasions and replacements and, you know, people coming and, you know, taking your jobs. So there's a bunch of these kind of toxic narratives around uh, people from outside of Europe and people who are migrating or seeking asylum. And uh, adopting these technologies, adopting these kind of harsh border policies are making people, politicians and policymakers look good for, for voters and for people elected, you know. And often it's, mm. you know, what a lot of voters also want. And this is instead of, you know, focusing on safe passages, you know, focusing on allowing people to be able to apply for visas more quickly mm. or to, you know, be able to apply for asylum more easily. Um, there's a lot of money going into the wrong things and the things that are basically not focused or like human rights centric. And I think that element of, you know, bringing in surveillance really gives the impression of kind of criminalizing something which actually everyone has the right to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, completely. And that's a very good observation, um, which, uh, which we can see playing out now in, in, in Africa, mostly in Western, uh, Central Africa and East Africa. Uh, where, you know, you have the EU who, again, after 2015, has started investing a lot of money in, um, quote-unquote, uh, tackling the root causes of migration. So going to the the places and the countries where migration stems from, where people are, are leaving, and investing money in those places in order to prevent people from going. So this has, again, taken the shape and the approach that we see or on Europe's border. So surveillance technologies, training police guards, building new border posts. Mind you, this is in a continent, on a continent or in a region where, you know, migration is kind of a traditional, uh, deeply embedded in the culture. You know, you have a lot of ethnic groups who in themselves, like this is what they do. They, they migrate, you know, they're pastoral or, you know, they're herders or, and so on. Um, so you have a lot of movement traditionally uh, in this region. And then here comes the EU investing a lot of money and kind of copy pasting a lot of the policies that they've been using in Europe to Africa. Um, and I've reported on this in Senegal and I'm doing other reporting in other countries. From what you were saying earlier, that's not the underlying cause, right, for people to migrate. It's not people surveillance and all of that. That sort of feels like a smokescreen versus the fact that someone is fleeing because of corruption or, you know, conflict, which are the underlying causes. Mm -hmm. Completely, yeah. People are not leaving because they can, because the borders aren't thick enough, you know. Yeah. Uh, they're leaving for yeah. other reasons, you know. Uh, it's exactly. not because there's no surveillance technologies or border posts <laughs> that people are not leaving. Are you keen to find out a bit more around some of the actions that the EU and Europe has been doing towards uh, anti-immigration deterrence, just to understand things like Frontex and, and the role that it plays in, in border management? Mm -hmm. As you've kind of described already, we, people aren't leaving because of a lack of surveillance. So it would just be interesting to to understand what role it's currently playing in border management. So yeah, Frontex was created around 2006, 2005, if I'm not wrong. You know, Europe's uh, Coast Guard and Border Agency. This agency was created by the Commission that coordinates uh, all uh, national border guards. Um, so they gather data, they support the national uh, governments with technologies, boats, cars, a bunch of kind of these tools to be able to better police their borders. Uh, it has also recently created its own force, like it's a pool of officers which get posted in different parts of Europe and support uh, people. Because of um, its 
kind of mandate, it, it's gotten to a place where it had a lot of power in, in surveilling Europe, uh, external borders. And after 2015, it received a lot of funding. So now I think it's nearing somewhere to a billion euros, which is it's the EU's best funded agency. It's ironic that that's, that is the best funded agency, as in, is that the priority for the priority Europe of... right now? <laughs> Completely, yeah. So the border, Europe's uh, best funded agency is the, the border agency. So the, the, the agency was in, uh, surrounded by a series of scandals since 2015 until, until now, which culminated with its director quitting his job last year. These scandals and you know, allegations were around, uh, we spoke about before, about pushbacks, you know, when people are sent back over the border without the right to apply for asylum. Frontex has been shown to uh, regularly be involved in these pushbacks together with national uh, border forces. So they were shown in um, repeated instances how they were facilitating and helping people to push back people. So a lot of these things, you know, could end in people dying and then people getting hurt. It was involved with uh, the Libyan Coast Guard. So a bunch of basically human rights uh, violations that were facilitated by Frontex and, you know, culminated with its director quitting. He was, the director himself was accused of leaving this toxic um, uh, kind of work environment where uh, preventing uh, human rights officers within the agency from investigating uh, irregularities in their operations, the manifestation of Europe's migration policy and all the bad things about it. It's interesting, as you said, there seems to be so many barriers to entering Europe, you know, from Frontex to then having these pushbacks and not also having the sort of like environmental challenges of trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea. When it comes to those from a refugee perspective, but also asylum seekers, beyond them having the right to seek asylum and being able to cross a border, what are the legal protections they have? Generally, any kind of sort of institution, uh, be it Frontex or you know, National Border Guards, or any, it's, it's obliged to respect physical and mental integrity of these people, right? So these people have a right to protection during their, their journey, whatever the reason that they're doing it uh, is for. Whatever attempt at beating them, torturing them in any way, or you know, putting their lives in danger is is illegal and you know should be kind of punished and prosecuted and investigated as as any crime would be. So yeah, they do. People on the move, they do enjoy like they do benefit from 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 protection, uh, legally speaking. But I'm guessing that's challenging when you have organization like Frontex then also covering things up when and preventing people from actually delivering, like investigating if th- these things do happen, when these things do happen. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So assuming that we've got somebody who's now overcome all these obstacles in terms of, you know, the risk of death, going past uh, bodies such as Frontex and the heavy investment that has been put in order to militarize Europe's border, what happens now that they're in detention, for example? So what does it mean when we say that somebody is in detention? Once they arrive in Europe, governments decide their status. So if they're coming from a conflict uh, country, you know, they're, they can qualify to apply for, for refugee status. If they don't, uh, and they just they migrate to Europe because of economic hardship, they're considered migrants. So depending on that, there's several basically uh, yeah, ways you'll be, let's say, handled by these governments. So uh, refugee status, you know, you get access to housing, food while you, just housing, you don't have the right to work while you wait for your asylum uh, procedure to, to happen. And then uh, if you're a migrant, often 
you'll be deported, you know, because you don't have any visas, you don't have a right to work, and you have no reason to, to claim asylum. So for a lot of people who are in this situation, uh, they are put in administrative detention centers, which are supposedly not for committing a crime. You know, they're not prisons. They're centers where people can stay until they wait for their flights to get deported or relocated, yeah, so on. But obviously these, um, these types of centers, you know, have gained a lot of notoriety in Europe for the conditions that they have uh, inside them, you know, because despite them being administrative centers, you can't stay there usually for more than 90 days. And, you know, you should benefit from all the healthcare um, and conditions uh, as a normal person would be. But a lot of the time they look like prisons. Sometimes people don't know why they're there. You know, I've reported on this before, specifically in Paris, um, where I was looking at this um, big detention center and there were people there who have lived in France for like 10 years or 20 years. And one day, you know, they were found to be in the country illegally or they haven't renewed their working permits or something. So they were like, we're deporting you. So they were putting people there and they're like, they don't understand, you know, why they're there. Someone who's been in France for 10, 15 years, uh, why are they sending him them back uh, to a country in Africa that they haven't lived in for since they left, you know? Yeah, it's quite parallel to the Windrush issue that we have here in the UK Completely. as well. You know, people that have lived in the UK for most of their lives and suddenly told that they have to go back to Jamaica, for example, you know, and it can be quite distressing for them. Exactly, exactly. It's exactly like uh, the Windrush scandal. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it just shows how disconnected these policies are from the realities of people that are affected by them. And, you know, a lot of the times this produces dark feelings uh, inside, like the, the conditions in which they're detained, the places like it really affects their mental health. You know, you have, I reported on like suicides, I reported on self-harming, unimaginable things of people swallowing uh, objects, you know, like it really affects their mental health being detained there in almost like prison-like conditions without really committing a crime. We can only, I guess, speak from what we hear in the UK, but as it becomes more and more volatile, people are almost pushing for people to be kept in, in worse conditions than they already are. You know, there's a perception that they're kept in hotels, but this is, it's not a five star, but they'll use that word to make that it sound word, like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. There, and there are never, <laughs> you know, hotels are not the way I would describe uh, a lot of these places. <laughs> definitely not, definitely not. But I do think to your point, Chini, that element around public perception and attitude is really important because mm. from everything you've shared with us, Andre, so far, you know, this is very much for me just reaffirms how much something that we all have the right to do is being criminalized. And even the term like detention center, mm. um, again, is giving, it's kind of reinforcing that idea that, you know, coming in and seeking asylum somewhere you don't have the right to do that. But Andre, from your perspective, how can public perception and attitudes towards migration and this topic be improved? What's really important is the sources of information that people have to understand what happens, because it's such a polarizing subject that, you know, a lot of the media and, you know, in the UK, you do have big kind of tabloid scene, you, you have a big kind of the media landscape, you know, is very, very polarizing and loves these types of headlines in these this mm -hmm. conflict. Um, and, you know, instilling fear in people all the time. So if you only follow one or several sources of information, which are predisposed to presenting the issue in a, yeah, in a very polarized way, you, you, you will react and you will have a, an opinion uh, that's similar. Your whole perspective will be changed by what news you consume. So it's really important, you know, read 
and understand kind of the whole context around the why people leave their conditions and from, from multiple sources you know there's a really good book by sally hayden called the the fourth time we drowned and that's an excellent kind of look into you know the whole issue of they use uh, attitudes to migration and then the personal stories of people trying to get to Europe. You know, these types of like research and kind of books, journalism, you know, podcasts, stuff like that, that really try not to sensationalize this topic and really try to understand it from a kind of research perspective, from an anthropological, from a societal perspective, and not cheap, easy narratives around, you know, us versus them, invasion, you know, conflict of cultures and, and, and so on. Yeah, there seems to be some kind of scarcity mentality, right? To make it think, oh, we have to be afraid of these people because they're going to take what you have. And, you know, it's all kind of then used to fight elections. And it's a little bit falsified, if I'm honest. There's really good resources in terms of what individuals can do also and kind of moving away from populism and doing a bit of further reading. But what do you think that Western countries can do? There are historical and systemic factors that have encouraged this this movement of people so we you know we have colonialism um racist policies and imperialism and neo-colonialism in a sense kind of all button heads um and kind of mm-hmm. responsible for this displacement mm-hmm. what action do you think that these western countries can do instead of simplifying this issue as a just a migrant crisis or invasion yeah no i see i think there's a lot of hypocrisy around you know the what's actually you know, triggering migration of what are some of the causes of people or why people leave. As you said, if you look back in time, you know, you have, you've had hundreds of years of colonialism. You've had, you know, like foreign involvement that goes on until today. And then, you know, you have this whole like aid and development industry that's making these, a lot of these countries dependent on, on foreign help. So take the example of Senegal, you know, you, until 1970 was, you know, under French colonial rule, then again, it is independence. But ever since it's been depending on on France for for, for everything basically the, their their currency is being printed in France the the West African franc uh, of Senegal and a bunch of other countries in the region you have a lot of foreign French companies but also European companies coming here and working in extractive uh, industries so fishing mining so a lot of a lot of the kind of natural resources that make a country rich. Senegal has a bunch of them and a lot of African countries have it and you come here and you take all these kind of resources and you you know sell them in Europe and make money and then a lot of countries come and they work on development projects you know we're gonna give fishermen equipment but at the same time we're gonna fish in the waters and deplete all the waters mm-hmm. from 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 the fishing stock you know we're gonna help mm-hmm. them build a school but at the same time we're gonna also build the mine next so I mean the millions in development and help that a lot of former colonies and a lot of these countries get, they're very little in comparison to, to the amount of money that are extracted, you know, through, through business, through, through this uh, manifestation of neocolonialism. Or European governments and countries are also part of the problem. You know, I mean, not to mention the fact that Europe and China, India and the, the US have basically uh, been the biggest contributors to the climate crisis. And now the people who are bearing the brunt are mostly, you know, coming from Africa and from a lot of countries uh, where, where migration comes from. And I mean, we're going to see a lot more migration because of climate change, which again was created by Western industrialization. You know, that says a lot about, you know, the consequences of the actions of European empires and now governments, companies, and now people leave and then people are surprised why they're leaving. Instead of, you know, trying to fix these root causes, stopping these attitudes, they're basically building borders, making it harder 
and really facilitating people's deaths. From your perspective, what do you foresee happening if nothing changes? Is it more of the same in terms of, you know, people coming through and migrating, but then also the reinforcement from a Europe perspective in terms of borders and making it even harder? Do you just foresee that getting worse and being kind of fortified as we go on? Or do you see Mm -hmm. any glimmer of hopeful something, things improving potentially? Well, every indicator we look at, and some are really obvious and easy, but some are a bit, you know, require more research. But every we look at shows that these policies aren't working. People still choose to leave. People still leave. People still risk their lives and people still die. Despite all the borders, the technologies and the, you know, things that are policies that are meant to prevent people from going. So they're not effective, you know. So clearly there's a need for another approach because let's say from 2015 until now, so eight years of these things, and we, we still see a rise, uh, an increase in people dying, an increase in people coming to Europe. So, I mean, we need to kind of be aware that things don't work the way we do them now, and they won't work later on. Um, you know, you have that in the UK as well with a lot of anti-immigration policies and the current government, you know, stopping the boats, but then the boats are not stopping. People will always risk their lives for a better life. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Andre, for um, oh, yeah. coming onto the show. This has been incredibly insightful and even yeah. just to understand and things like the interchangeability of refugee and migrant, for example, or just to understand the step-by-step process and what the EU has funded and in order to prevent people from sort of entering the borders. And we're wondering if you had any sort of further resources. I know that you shared some earlier that you recommend our, our listeners could look into anything that you perhaps may want to share and that would help us understand the situation more. Well, yeah, first, let me thank you as well for having me. It was a great uh, conversation. I was happy to to, yeah, to be here today and speak to you. And yeah, in terms of resources, uh, so I mentioned this before, Sally Hayden's uh, book is, you know, one of the kind of best works of journalism uh, done in recent years to help people better understand this. I work a lot with an investigative nonprofit called Lighthouse Reports. And it does a lot of good work in showing the issues around migration and the EU's uh, policies. And I also share a bunch of resources on my on my Twitter page all the time related to, to migration um, and human rights. So that's also a good place to <laughs> have a, a curated uh, resource of, of migration uh, insights. Perfect. Well, this is like such a good starting point for anyone just wanting mm. to understand the topic better as well. And I think we'll definitely make sure for those listening that will add those uh, resources that you have mentioned onto the episode show notes. But honestly, Andre, thank you so much for joining us. We've been wanting to cover this topic. I can't even begin to tell you yes. how long for, but just trying to make sure that, A, from a knowledge perspective, it's not an area that Chi and I have that much of an understanding of. But honestly, it's been really good to have your insight, your experiences. And I think just helps to really clarify a lot of misconceptions and things that you know the way in which the media presents as you said it's really being conscious of like what you're reading and where it's coming from and you know those involved behind it but definitely it's it's great to sort of clarify a, a lot of these areas and stuff so thank you so much for joining us and thank you for those listening for joining us as well we will see you next time thank you bye thank you thank you